Hello and welcome to OU's Nach Yomi. You can find this year posted at ouradio.org/nach or on my website, ericlevy.com, under the recording section. Hi, this is Rabbi Eric Levy, and I am pleased to bring to you Chapter 15 of the Book of Eov, Perek Tetvav. We now enter the second cycle of discourse between Eov and his three companions. The order of the discourse is the same. First first, uh, Eliphaz, and then Eov, and then Bildad, and then Eov, and so far, and then Eov. In fact, we will actually see some of the same ideas and the same accusations as we've seen in the first round. But whereas in the first round, many of the accusations were merely hints and allusions, here the gloves really come off. So where Eliphaz was rather gentle in his first speech, here we have a far more accusatory and sharp tone. Vayan Eliphaz Temani Vayomar. And Eliphaz the Temanite responded and said, Hechacham ruach. Does a wise man respond with vaporous ideas? Does he fill his guts? And remember, the guts were considered to be the, the source of instinct or instinctual thought. Uh, does he fill them with the east wind? Clearly, that's how Eliphaz is categorizing Eov's words as wind. And it's a proof of Eov's lack of wisdom that he would do such a thing. Does a wise man argue with talk that doesn't help or with words that give no, that have no benefit? And as in much poetry, you have to sort of borrow, a lot of times a verse is short, that is you have to borrow a word from the previous verse or a previous line. So it's, you really have to borrow the word hechacham. Does a wise person do these things? Does he argue with, with words that do not help? So not only he's saying not only the words that you argue are, are essentially demonstrate your lack of wisdom. You even cause fear, that is fear of God, to be abandoned. That is, you undermine people's uh, awe of God and you diminish people's communication with God. Indeed, or how do you do this? Because your mouth demonstrates your own sin. That is, your very talking proves your sins. Perhaps not only the fact that he is talking, but the words that he's saying. Continuing on, in that you choose crafty words, Lashon Arumim. The word Arum means wise, but often in Tanakh it's used in the negative sense, such as tricky or crafty or shrewd, which is similar to the snake in the Garden of Eden, who was Arum Mikol Chayat He was wiser, but really means craftier than the other beasts of the field. So Eliphaz is saying that not only are Eov's words sinful and unwise, but they're even more sinful in that they are undermining the orthodoxy of others. Yarshiacha ficha viloani usvatecha yanuvach. Your mouth condemns you, not I, it wasn't me, and your lips testify against you. And now he's using these legal terms, but using them against Eov. That is, you asked for a court case, Eliphaz says to Eov, a place where you will be matzdik, will you be justified as you make your claim, as you are oneh? Well, in, in fact, the opposite is happening. Your lips are self-incriminating and you make, and, and you wind up being a Russia in court, which means you lose your court case because of these same claims that you proposed would win you the court case. 
Eliphaz now challenges Eov's claim that he is as wise as his friends, or in fact that he has any wisdom at all. Are you the first man to be born? Were you formed before the hills were? Did you hear things as part of God's inner circle? Did you extract out wisdom for yourself? The word sod means secret in modern Hebrew and also in biblical Hebrew, but the original sense in biblical Hebrew was a small group of people, like a little club. And there, from there you could see where the abstract noun secret uh, came about, because these small clubs, the things that they say, are usually kept within that club and are not available to everybody. Uh, Eliphaz's point is that see, since Eov wasn't there at the beginning of the world, uh, and he wasn't part of God's inner circle, then his knowledge essentially amounts to nothing. It's pure ignorance. God will make actually a similar point later in the book, that Eov wasn't around when he created the world. But here Eliphaz means it much more negatively than God will mean it later, since if you remember, Eliphaz was claiming, had claimed in chapter 4, to have received his wisdom directly from God. And he will claim this again in this chapter. So essentially he's saying, I was there, I know what's going on, you weren't there, you have no idea what you're talking about. What do you know that we, that is we group of friends, don't know? What do you comprehend that is not already understood by us? Gam sav gam yashish banu kabir banu kabir me'avicha yamim. We have both advanced years and old age, greater in years than your father. It's almost like a childish argument. In chapter 12, Eov uses the word yashish to argue that anyone with uh, some any kind of age and life experience knows the truth about how, how God works in this world. So uh, Eliphaz's response is, you want wisdom? You want experience? We've got it more than you? And in fact, our years are even older. If you're just basing it on experience, we're older than even your father is. Uh, the words Yom here, of course, Kabir Me'avicha Yamim, greater in years than your father, Yom means year as opposed to day, as it often does in Tanakh. I think that Eliphaz here in verse 11, in the next verse, while he seems to be asking a reasonable question, is actually bragging about the irrefutability of his own words, since they come directly from God, or so he says. imach. Are neither God's consolations nor the gentle words, that is, God's gentle words, good enough for you? So Eliphaz simultaneously rebukes Eo for arguing with his first round of advice, but he's also saying that the advice was Tanchumot El, it was God's consolations, since he received them through prophecy. So that when Eliphaz gives him advice and Eov is rejecting it, he's not just rejecting a person's words, he's rejecting God's words. So how dare he do such a thing? How is it that your heart, that is your mind, takes you, as it takes you astray? What do your eyes hint to you? The word, uh, the verb, resh zayin mem, rezem, from the verb yir zimun, is very difficult. It is a unique word in Tanakh, uh, in a fancy term, a unique word in Tanakh is called a hapex logomenon. Uh, Ibn Ezra says, just uh, switch the letters around. He calls it a hafuch, which means that the letters have been transposed. So instead of reading Yir Zimun, it's really Yir Mezun, or it's like Yir Mezun, and should be understood from the word Remez, Yir Mezun, which means to hint at, or to allude, or to indicate. 
the root remez actually is not found in Tanakh at all, although it's a common modern Hebrew word. It, it actually shows up for the first time in rabbinic literature, in, in Mishnah and Gemara. Nevertheless, um, this may be its first single use in Tanakh, year Mizun, year Zamun, since, of course, the rabbis didn't get the words out of thin air. They took them from spoken language which uh, sometimes doesn't show up in Tanakh or doesn't show up in Tanakh the way we expect it. And by the way, the fact that letters get transposed without altering the meaning of the word uh, shows up in Hebrew a few times. For instance, kesev and keves, a transposition, both mean goat or sheep, and simla and salma both mean shirt. So just because you switch around letters, uh, both forms are acceptable and both forms mean the same thing. Uh, it's also possible that the word means to lift up or to throw out or to cast out, uh, and then we would translate it as, uh, how is it that your eyes have uh, kind of thrown you for a loop, have, have sent you in the wrong direction? And this would be parallel to the first half of the line, which uses the word yikachan, what ways have they taken you astray? But in order to change the meaning here to lift up or to throw out or cast out, then we have to change the consonant in yirzamun, the zayin, to a vowel vav, uh, which would be Yerumon, which I prefer not to do. But in any event, the sense is pretty straightforward, which means look how you allowed your quote-unquote experience to lead you away from real wisdom rather than towards it. So much so that, in the next verse, ki tashiv el el ruchecha votseta mipicha milim, that you responded to God with your vapor, that is, with your hot air, with your nothingness words. You brought out words, and the intention here to milim is bad words, from your mouth. Uh, and now Eliphaz returns to his claim that man is a flawed creation. That is, what we finished up here is the idea that you say you're wise and we're not wise. Well, haha, we're wise. You're not wise. We have more experience than you do. And in fact, my words come directly from God. Your words, which you thought you were wise, are actually led you away from wisdom. And now Eliphaz returns to another claim that he made back, to, back in chapter 4, which is that man is a flawed creation, and therefore one should see God's punishments as a response to the very real flaws, and therefore sins, that are a part of man, that are a natural part of man. And he even uses Eov's own words. Eov said, man is born of woman, Yeludi Shab. But Eliphaz is coming to a different conclusion than Eov did by saying those same words. Eov said that man's imperfection should be recognized by God since God is his creator. And as such, since he did create him in this way, he shouldn't take him account for the very creation, the way he created him. Eliphaz says, no, imperfection is sin and sin is punishable. But Eliphaz intensifies it here. And he's intensifying it here, as we'll see, probably because Eov didn't accept his words the first time. So in chapter 4, Eliphaz said about man, Yamutu he, the humankind, mankind, dies without achieving any real understanding. And therefore he also says, Can man be more right, more justified, more correct than God? But here he says much more sharply, what is man that he should be justified or, 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 or should be considered pure? That one born of man should be vindicated, that should, that he should ever be found to be right. Even his holy ones, that, that is God's holy ones, he does not trust, or perhaps he does not make them reliable and flawless. Even the heavens are not pure in his eyes. By, 
Heaven, Shamayim, he means either the angels or perhaps the very high-level physical creations like the sun and the moon and the stars, which always follow the vector which was uh, commanded by God as opposed to man. Now compare all of these words to chapter 4, verse 17 to 21, and you'll see that Eov is sort of saying, I'm sorry, Eliphaz is saying similar things, but he's ratcheting them up quite a bit. And now here's the biggest ratchet up intensification that we have. Afkinit elach ish shoteh Chamayim avla, even meaning so. Even if the so if if the angels are imperfect, imperfect, then how much more so the one who was foul, nitav, and neelach, corrupt, man who is shotek chamayim avla, who drinks sin like water. So in chapter four, man was just imperfect and therefore likely to have some kind of sins due to his lack of understanding and his inherent imperfection. But here, man is a guzzler of sin. He gets drunk on sin, meaning Eo should be able to figure out with any problem why he's being punished by God and that claiming not to be a guzzler of sin, uh, uh, full of sins, is disingenuous at best. Now that Eliphaz has established that he is wise and Eov is not, and that all men are sinners in the worst way, in verse 17, from this verse on, through the end of the chapter, Eliphaz will explain what happens to sinners. Let me explain to you, and heed me, because this I have seen, so let me relate it. Note that he uses the word chaziti, which sort of hints at something seen in a vision, in a prophecy, or some kind of transcendental experience. Asher chachamim yagidu chadu me'avotam. This which wise men will tell without hiding from their fathers. Now, now we essentially come to a fork in the road to interpret this little biblical section from this verse 17 through the end of the chapter. According to Rashi, and based on a Talmudic source, this verse about uh, the person who, uh, the Chachamim, which tell and do not hide things from their father, this verse really begins the explanation of, um, of uh, the righteous versus the sinners. And Eliphaz's message is, wise men admit their sins, even to their parents. And there's an accusation against Eov here, because what he's saying is Eov is lying not only to his friends, his God, himself, he's lying to everybody about his actions and therefore he doesn't get any uh, uh, credit. He has to be considered a sinner. The rest of the chapter, therefore, which describes the actions and punishments of the wicked, is therefore a thinly veiled metaphor, which is an accusation against Eov. Now, the second possibility, which is championed by Rav Yosef Karo, who was Rashi's student, and other commentators, is that this verse that I just read is still introducing the wisdom which begins in the next verse. And the sense is that the wisdom that I'm about to tell you is told by the wise men of old who heard it from their fathers and never suppressed it, but transmitted it correctly. And this sort of hints back to Bildad's speech, because Eliphaz claimed to gain his knowledge by God. And Bildad said that if you have to go back to the elders for real knowledge... So um, Eliphaz is saying that this knowledge which I'm about to tell you is not only the knowledge that I've seen by God, but it's also the ones that every wise man has always told and they've always transmitted it faithfully without uh, corrupting what their fathers have told them. So in this case, that is if Rashi is wrong and it's not talking about... Um, uh, uh, Eov himself, then maybe what Eliphaz is, is doing is arguing against Eov's claim 
um, which would have been a terrible claim indeed that the wicked inherit the dirt uh, the earth and and they do so because of their wickedness and it, and and God acquiesces to it. So then what he might be saying is, don't worry about those wicked people because I'll show you what really happens to them in the end. To them alone the land is given and a stranger never comes amongst them. So again, we can interpret this two ways. According to Rashi, Laham refers to people who admit their sins. Uh, so it means that the people who admit their sins, they're the ones who really inherit the earth and no stranger comes amongst them, which means nothing bad happens to them. But if it's not like Rashi, and this is the first sentence, the beginning of the wisdom, then perhaps Eliphaz is saying, Eof, you're so worried that the wicked inherit the earth and that that's a sign that God just doesn't care or that he doesn't work justly. So let me explain that when they are giving the land and it seems that no stranger can stop them, in reality, what really happens is the next Pasuk. All the days of the wicked person, he quivers in fear. Only a few years have been set aside for the oppressor. So according to the second interpretation, not like Rashi, the whole time the wicked seems to be enjoying his conquest, he's actually looking over his shoulder the, the entire time for the coup to come against him and for him to suffer the same thing that he's caused to others. The sound of fears are in his ears when he is at peace, or when he thinks he's at peace, that's when the despoiler, the shodade, will come against him. Eliphaz may be hinting at God coming, because Shaddai is similar to the word Shodeid. Lo yamin shuv mini choshech v'tzafui hu elecharev. And then he won't believe that he will return from the darkness. Or again, perhaps the word Ya'amin means reliable and enduring. So the translation would be, he will never again find fortitude or to, the ability to endure in the face of darkness. And he will face, meaning he can expect to find only Charev, the sword. No deid hu lechem ayei. He will wander for sustenance, for bread, saying, where is it? He knows that the dark times are ready for him. Literally, they are in his hand. Troubles and distress terrify him. They attack him like a king destined for a siege. In modern Hebrew, kadur means a bull, but in Tanakh it always means something like a circle. So here, it means an attack from all sides. It is after this conqueror is conquered and taken control of the city, he is always waiting for the next siege to come to conquer him. And the reason why the wicked will suffer is in the following three verses. Kinata el el yadov el shaddai yitgabar. Because he, the wicked person, stretched his hand against God, against Shaddai, uh, he made a show of strength. Remember that according to Rashi, this is the man who doesn't come clean about his sins, and it's hinting at Eov. So according to Rashi, Eliphaz is accusing Eov of attacking God with his words. The second interpretation, that uh, that uh, this is not about Eov, but it's about these wicked people that fight against God's will. So Eov was troubled because he was saying if they fight against God's will, they shouldn't succeed. And if they do succeed, God must be willing their success. So what Eliphaz is saying is, no, by the fact that they are going against God's will, it's not that they're just conquering other people, but they're trying to conquer God himself, and they will eventually lose everything, the fight and everything that they've gotten from their from their uh, uh, unjustifiable war. Yarutz Elav 
Bitzavar Bavi Gabei Magina, further describing the attack against God, he runs at him, at God, with a neck, Bitzavar. I think this means that he, he does it with his help, with his neck held up high and exposed, as if he is completely confident of his success. But it may also mean some kind of neck armor, uh, which matches the next half of this poetic line, Ba'avi Gabei Maginav, with the full width of the mound of his shield or his buckler. The center of the shield had a raised and perhaps sharpened mound, which was used as an offensive weapon. So the description is this uh, this uh, foolish uh, a warrior attacking God. And now, the metaphor of the warrior attacking God concludes with why the attacker was foolish enough to do such a thing as attack God. Because he hid his face in his fat and placed blubber over his loins. And the word kasel here, while it means loins, for the second time, Eliphaz seems to be hinting at an alternative meaning, which means to be foolish. If you remember back in chapter 4, he says, Your fear is your confidence, but it's also, there was the double entendre there that I discussed about how kessel also means that you're being foolish. And the reason why kessel came to mean foolishness is because the the fat that covered up that part of the body, and that body was was considered to be the uh, a place for instinctive reasoning. So that fat covered up that reasoning, causing foolishness. And that may also be why um, uh, why the word kessel means the third meaning that it has, which is confidence, because confidence very often comes with a certain fat-headed, foolish, uh, youthful. A lack of thinking. That is, when you don't think about something, you sort of run into it, run into it with confidence, uh, even though that confidence is foolish. So here, the warrior is foolishly and intentionally covering himself with his fat, which I guess is his ego, um, and in this foolish confidence, which we may, I think we would call in modern times the thick-headedness. Uh, he sets about to conquer God, conquer God. And this fits in very nicely, of course, with Rashi's understanding that Eliphaz is describing Eob's sins, since Eliphaz has hinted at his foolishness before in chapter number four. He dwelled or will dwell in ruined cities and in abandoned houses that are destined from the word atid, hit atidu, from the word atid, they are destined to be stone piles. This may mean that the wicked who conquered and despoiled these other cities will in the end lose the very same cities and the spoil that they that they took. He will not become rich and he will establish no wealth and he will not spread out his possessions on the ground. And this last image is one of a conqueror who spreads out his spoils to count how rich he is, or a rich person who sits around counting his coins. Milan is a very difficult word. Uh, Ebenezer says his completeness, or everything he has, is... Uh, uh, which works out well with the, way, with the word possessions, as I translated it, but it also seems to be, a, it may be an abbreviation of two words, min and lan, which is both in a concatenation of the word min and lahem, and then an abbreviation of lahem to lam, the way bahem is sometimes concatenated, is, is trimmed down to, to bam, 
Uh, and this also means the same idea that is everything min lahem, everything that belongs to them, which means they spread out everything that belongs to them on the ground. And now, um, Eliphaz moves to a new metaphor, which is a tree that is destroyed. And this is a very, the, the fact that he's using this meta- metaphor of, of a destroyed tree is a very sharp response to Eov. If you remember, in chapter 14, Eov contrasted a tree with a man. That is, a tree, unlike man, has hope for resurrection or, or restoration, assuming that its roots are replanted and that there's water available to bring the tree back to life, as opposed to man who was never brought back to life, according to uh, according to uh, uh, Eov. So Eliphaz is saying that, you know what, Eov, there's some trees for which no restoration is possible. So don't consider yourself a tree that might have a chance of restoration. Some trees simply die out. Lo yasur mini choshech yonakto tiabesh shalhevet v'yasur beruach piv. It will never leave the darkness, like that is, it will never sprout up again from the earth. Flames will desiccate its roots. It will leave or be removed by the wind of his, that is God's mouth. Note that the reference is never far removed from the metaphor, from the image, because yonakto means roots, so we're talking about a tree, but it also means yonakto can mean nursing one's nursing baby, so therefore the reference of the sinner is uh, very close at hand. Rashi's interpretations work particularly well here that uh, that um, that Eliphaz is really talking about Eob and his sins, since this tree is destroyed by the wind of, of God and the fire of God, which really matches Eov's destructions or his children's and possessions destruction in chapter 1 by the wind of God and the fire of God. Al yamein bashav nit'ah it will not endure in nothingness or perhaps in destruction it is brought down nothingness or destruction will be its recompense I'm translating a few notes on uh, on some difficult words the word I'm translating from the root nun taf ayin which is similar to nun taf tsadi natat which means to break uh, rather than being the passive form of the word taf uh, ayin hay, which means to go astray. Uh, so essentially it's planted, sorry, it, it is removed from its plant, it is removed from the earth, bishav, in nothingness or in destruction. I'm also going to go out on a limb here, kind of pun intended, because we're talking about a tree, uh, with the word shav, which appears twice. Now shav can mean vanity or nothingness, like something which has no, no real existence. Uh, which fits nicely, but Shav, the, if you notice, the first Shav is missing its olive. So you would read it uh, show, except the fact that we're told to read it Shav. So I'm offering a translation based on the word Shoah, which means it is destroyed, and its destruction is what it what it receives as recompense. And and remember, so that means that the Vav is a vowel here rather than a noun. And remember, of course, that the Vav was pronounced like a Wah, like a wah in, uh, in ancient Hebrew, which is how the Arabs pronounce it, and also how Yemenites pronounce it. So therefore, the word shav to lie was really pronounced shaw, and shoah, which means to destroy, are, are really very similar in sound. Um, also notice, once again, the idea that the metaphor and the referent, the image and what the image represents, are very close to each other. They're almost superimposed and visible, because the standard meaning of shav means to lie, and is a synonym, in fact, of the word sheker. So, once again, Eliphaz is hinting to the referent, that is, for, when he's talking about the trees, it means either nothingness or destruction. But for if he's talking about the wicked person, which he is, that is, for Eop, he's saying that he is lying about God, and therefore lies are all what he could expect 
expect to receive. Continuing with the tree metaphor, below yomo timalei v'chipato lo ra'an nana. It withers before its time and its canopy has no freshness. That is, it dries up or the leaves fall off of it. Now, notice the very interesting word timalei, Mem Lamed Aleph, actually seems to come from the word Yimol, or Malal, Mem Lamed Lamed, which means to wither, rather than from the word Malay, which means to be full. However, once again, by using this word, Eliphaz is able to transmit both the metaphor of the withering tree, of the Malal tree, as well as the reference, the man who does not fill, who is not Malay, his Yomo, his days, which means he dies before his time. So this beautiful word allows us to see both the metaphor and and the referent at the same time. It's kind of superimposed. Very, very excellent and very pretty poetry. Not that the author of the Book of Eov needs my compliments. Yachmos kagefen bisro v'yashlech kazayet nitzato. It's unripe, that is, it's unfit fruits, that's what boser means, are scattered like bad grapes from the vine, and its buds will be cast out like um, like an olive. And that image is uh, like a person who uh, smacks an olive tree, and the uh, weaker olives, they, they kind of uh, fall to the ground to wither and rot away. And so Eliphaz condemns not only the parent with this sentence, with this verse, but he condemns the offspring as well. And now Eliphaz moves us away from the metaphors of the fat and foolish warrior and away from the metaphor of the ruined tree. And we return finally to the sinner himself, to the reference. And although the sinner may be Eov, like Rashi said, or according to the second interpretation, it may be the wicked who seemingly, but not enduringly, inherited the earth. And it seemed like God was approving of it, but in fact God would take vengeance upon it. Um, either way, the referent is exposed in the next and last two sentences. Indeed, the congregation or the family of the profane, chanef uh, is profane or somebody who's godless or irreligious, will be like a stone and fire will devour the tents of bribers of people who bribe. It's not clear to me why Eliphaz picks that sin, specifically bribery, to be the parallel for Chanei, for profane person, but that's what he does. Hora amal v'yalod aven, this happens, that is, this destruction, this turning into stone, or this burning away, uh, happens to those who conceive toil and breed sorrow. The sense is that with their own sins, they give birth to the trouble and the sorrow that they must suffer, and that maybe they shouldn't complain about it so much. Uvietnam tachin mirma, and their wombs prepare, or ready, deceit. Note that Eliphaz began chapter, uh, the beginning of the chapter with the word beten, accusing Eov of filling his beten, his guts, with the east wind, that is with useless words, with bad words. So it seems that this bearer of lies from his beten can be no one but Eov himself.